Well, great to be with all of you this weekend again. So excited to journey into what God has for us today. As many of you know, and some of you may not, over the last eight plus years, we have been journeying through the Bible, starting in Genesis chapter one, and working our way chronologically through the story of God. We've discovered some incredible things along the way. As we traveled through what we know as the Old Testament, we really discovered there in beautiful stories as they unfolded that when we choose as human beings to live our lives God's way, it leads to life and freedom for us and for those around us. And when we choose to live life uh, our way, it tends to lead to death and destruction for us and those around us. Us. And we just really got a great picture of this incredible dynamic between humanity and God. And then as we entered out of the Old Testament into the Gospels, the story of Jesus, we really discovered there God's great rescue story for us as human beings, where God becomes one of us in the form of Jesus Christ, comes and lives among us, and lives and dies and rises from the dead to rescue our souls uh, and, and to restore and redeem our future. And so we really discovered there that Jesus was exactly who he said he was and did exactly what he said he did, and in doing what he said he did and being who he said he was, he rescued our souls and, and, and redeemed our future so that we are right with God. And then as we came out of the Gospels and we entered into the book of Acts, we discovered an extraordinary expansion of the Gospel there, the great news and great story of God, that it isn't just that Jesus came to rescue our souls and redeem our future and set us right with God, but he also came to restore our created purpose, that we get to live on mission with him that we get to participate in the mission of God on this planet. He doesn't need us, but he invites us to be part of the story. It's an incredible privilege we get, and the book of Acts is the unfolding story of the early New Testament church, which really, in essence, is us. It is not a separate story from us. It is the beginning of our story as the church of Christ, and so uh, it is a beautiful way to begin to look back and say, in the infancy of the story of the New Testament church, what was it that drove that church? How is it that God worked in us and through us then? And that gives us deep clues into what our life should look like now. That should not look different from what it looked like then. So as we have journeyed into the book of Acts, we have discovered incredible stories and through them amazing principles of the lives that we are invited to live as we follow Jesus' disciples because we have been rescued by him and invited into a life of mission by him. In that journey through the book of Acts, uh, we jumped into the book of Galatians because remember we were in Galatia with Paul and Barnabas and, and, and in Galatia there was a lot of hassle going on and so Paul writes a clarifying letter, the book of Galatians, to the people of Galatia and in that letter he clarifies the gospel and what does he show us there, right? He, he shows us that this beautiful gospel, the good news of Jesus, sets us free from the legalism of lawful self-righteousness where we're trying to live by the law to show God how right we are but it also sets us free from a lawless self-governance where we go, since I'm in Jesus, I can do whatever I want. It invites us into a beautiful space where we live our lives for him, uh, living his story instead of ours, and then experiencing the freedom for, what he, for which he rescued us. Remember Galatians says in Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that he has set you free. But then at the end of Galatians 5, he says, do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature, but instead serve one another in love. Live God's story, not your own. 
And now we're entering again back into the book of Acts as we come out of Galatians and out of the Christmas season. And I'm so excited about where we're about to jump into because the stories we're about to enter into are extraordinary and miraculous. So just to give you a quick scope of where we are in the book of Acts since we've been out of it for a little while, Paul and Barnabas were traveling from Antioch. They went to Cyprus, then they went into Galatia to cities like Derba, Lystra, and others like that, establishing churches as they planted the seed of the gospel. Now remember as they did that, uh, they were carrying the gospel into a territory where the Gentile world and the Jewish world, world were colliding. There was a lot of Jews but also a lot of Gentiles so that was new territory for them and it was out of that that we discovered the book of Galatians. As they traveled and came back to Antioch, if you remember, Paul and Barnabas were chatting one day and Barnabas said to Paul, we should go back to the churches we've established and visit them and encourage them and Paul agreed. So Barnabas wanted to bring John Mark with them but John Mark had traveled with them to Cyprus earlier and then abandoned them on the way. Paul f- still felt very much like that was not a good thing. So Paul said to Barnabas, I'm not taking John Mark with me. Barnabas said, John Mark deserves a second chance. I'm taking him with me. And so Paul said, well, if you're taking him with you, I ain't going. And so Barnabas and Paul decided to part ways there. Barnabas and um, uh, John Mark went to Cyprus and Paul took Silas and traveled back into Galatia. So what was kind of a, a, a bummer relational uh, dynamic going on, which they restored later on, turned out to send two teams into two different places. Well, as Paul and Silas headed into Galatia, they got to Derba and Lystra again, and there they bumped into Timothy. Timothy will now become one of Paul's great protégés and will be the person Paul writes first and second Timothy to, which we'll get to later. So Timothy starts traveling with them, and they head from Galatia, and they start moving into the west. And that's really where we pick up the story. Now, Uh, Just so you know, if you're going to move from Galatia and you're going to head west on a map, if you look at it geographically and you looked at a map, if you look at the sort of top right-hand side of the map, you'll see Galatia over there and and they've been hanging out in Derba and Lystra. Now that what they're going to do is they're going to move west, but the most strategic move would be to move west and then in a southerly direction so that you're moving, you're heading from the right-hand side of the map to the left, but you're heading down following that coastline. Because if you follow the coastline, you head into Asia, and in Asia you have some dramatic cities there, right? You have cities like uh, Colossae, Ephesus, I mean, the, the, the city that Paul writes the book of Colossians to, the city that Paul writes the book of Ephesians to, these cities are on that coastline in Asia. So it makes sense from Galatia, you head down in the south southwesterly direction, and you preach the gospel there. Why? Because that's still where the Jewish world and the Gentile world collide. You've just come out of Galatia, it's a no-brainer. You go to the synagogues there, just like Paul's strategy was, go to the synagogue, share the gospel with the Jews, and then have the Jews share the gospel with you to the Gentiles, right? Uh, and, and that's where you would expect them to go, except that when we jump into scripture, we see a change of plan. So grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 16. This is where we're gonna spend our time. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide, uh, you will be going to page 601. Page 601. Uh, in the Bibles we'll provide, or you'll be going to Acts chapter 16 in whatever Bible or a smartphone or device you brought with you. Okay, uh, Acts chapter 16, and we're going to jump in at verse 6. Acts chapter 16, verse 6. They're just leaving Galatia now, and it says this, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak a word in Asia. 
So there we get a clue as to why they didn't follow the most strategic route. Because though they were on the move on mission, the Spirit of God was speaking to them and saying, no, 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 don't go there. Uh, Don't say a word there. Move in this direction. Don't do that. So Paul's on the move and they're heading out and this is what it says. And when they had come up to uh, uh, Mycenae, Uh, They attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Okay, so Paul and them are traveling now. Here's what happened, okay? They're deciding to go into Asia, which is that uh, southwesterly route. The Spirit of God forbids them to go that route so that they don't spend time in those cities. So what they decide to do is just to travel westward then and go the northwestern route, uh, head up to uh, Mysia, and then in Mysia, travel up into Bithynia, because that would be another strategic way to start carrying the gospel. Again, because there's significant Jewish influence here, even though it is the Gentile world. You are now moving toward Rome, so the Roman influence is getting stronger now. And so the Roman way of life is getting stronger as well, and the Greek influence and philosophy from the Greek world that was there when Rome came in, that's very influential. And so you'd you'd head up into Bithynia. Now, as Paul and them get to uh, Mysia, and they want to head to Bithynia, the Spirit of God tells them again, don't go there. And so they head directly west and they end in Troas, which is right on the coast of the Aegean Sea. So on the other side of the Aegean Sea, uh, uh, Aegean sea is, uh, uh, is, the, this, is a very, very Roman region. Okay, So they end up in Troas and there uh, they're kind of settling in. Now, this is interesting because this demonstrates again the incredible principle that we have discovered in our journey through the book of Acts. That when we are living on mission, uh, following Jesus, Jesus, our missional life should look as follows, which is what we're seeing in Paul right now again and again and again. We should be on the move and receptive to the Holy Spirit. We shouldn't be sitting around waiting to see what the Spirit tells us. We should be going, carrying the gospel, because we've already been told to do that. But while going, we ought to be receptive to the Holy Spirit, devoted to Him, working at works of intimacy with the Spirit, because it is an intimacy with the Spirit that we will be able to journey effectively on mission and find ourselves in the space as he wants us. If you are receptive to the Spirit but sitting around waiting, you are missing out on mission. If you are on the go but you're not listening because you're too busy with your mind fixed on your own strategies, you are not going to be on effective mission. Effective missional living is being on the go, in the world, in the workplace, doing your thing, in the social networks, running in the groups you're in, at school, and yet receptive all the time to the Spirit because you are building intimacy with Him. And because of that, we see Paul travel this way with his entourage. Is they're going, but they're listening, and so they're bouncing around. They end up in Troas, and look, and look, it says it right there. So passing by Messia, they went down to Troas. Now in Troas, two extraordinary things happen. Two awesome things. The first thing that happens is they bump into a person there that is super cool to have around now, okay? His name is Luke. Do you know who Luke is? Luke is the author of the Gospel of Luke. He is also the author of the book of Acts that we're reading right now. So the very book that we're reading, the author who's authoring this book, uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy bump into him in Troas now, and he joins with them, and from now on he will travel with them, which means that everything we're having accounted to us from here on out is a eyewitness, first-hand account, which is awesome, because certainly Luke, 
Luke uh, has been taking copious notes from the interviews he's been having with guys like Paul and others uh, to give us the gospel of Luke and to give us the early parts of Acts. But from here onward, it is not Paul, it is not Luke saying they did this and they went there. It is him being part of the story, which is super exciting. The other incredible thing that happens here is that God gives Paul an incredible vision. Take a look at what it says. And it says, when they were in Troas, uh, verse 9 now, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man from um, Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go uh, on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Two beautiful things happen here. One, we get the clue as to how we know Luke joined them. Did you notice the change? All along, the entire book of Acts has been saying this, and they went there, and they did this, and they saw that, and they did this, and what just changed? Right here in this moment, it says, and we concluded, and so God was calling us to go. And from now on, that's what you're going to hear. It's a we, it's a us. So Luke is now writing, we went here, and he called us to this, instead of they went there, and he called them to that. Do you see the difference? And so from now on, Luke is with them, and that's exciting. I'm just excited because I like Luke, and it's awesome to have him around. And so uh, here we head out. The other awesome thing is that God is now calling these guys into brand new territory. You see, again, strategically from Troas, you would now circle back and travel that coastline, go to Ephesus first, and then move your way through because those are very influential cities with great Jewish influence. If you cross over the Aegean Sea into this region that they're being called to, uh, then things change because in Macedonia, Macedonia is a deeply Roman region. In fact, in Macedonia, you have several cities that are Roman colonies, which is very different, which means this, that if, it's, if, if there's a Roman colony, it means the people that live there belong to Rome. They're Roman citizens. They hold citizenship. It's very different to be a Roman citizen or living in a Roman region. And, and um, this region, Macedonia, is a Roman region with cities that are Roman colonies. And that's a big deal, which means you're entering into a world where the way of life is Roman. Do you understand? Like these people love Rome. They care about Rome. They fight for Rome. And that's the deal. And anything that isn't Rome is bad. And so that would be sort of a later on in the game strategy if you were traveling uh, until the gospel's really taken hold in this more Jewish-influenced area. Because in, uh, in that region, you are not going to have a lot of Jewish influence. In cities like Thessalonica, you'll have a synagogue there, but it's small. In cities like Philippi, which are all in this region, you're going to have no synagogue at all. And that's what they're now traveling into. So it gets kind of exciting because God has traveled them now 400 miles by foot from Galatia to Troas without giving them permission to really share the gospel in any town. It's got to be frustrating. Paul's a gospel carrier. He wants to get into a town, plant a church, share the gospel. And God's going, no, 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 bouncing in between north and south along a westerly route. And you got to wonder, God, why not share it with these people? Because if you do, you're going to hang out in that city for months. And I have a story waiting for you that I want you to be part of that's miraculous and you can't wait to show it to you. So here they are in Troas and so guess what they do? Immediately they set sail. It says in verse 11, so setting sail from Troas, we, there it is again, 
made a direct voyage uh, to Samothrace. Now, Samothrace is a little island in the Aegean Sea. It's right between the journey from Troas, cutting across to uh, the, the uh, region of Macedonia. And if you're on your way there, you're going to Neapolis, which is the coastal uh, port of Philippi. So it's a different city. It actually stands for New City, but it's a coastal port of Philippi. And so uh, you would head there. The journey across the Aegean Sea, if the winds are ahead of you, takes about five to six days. The journey across, if the winds are at your back, takes about a day and a half to two days. You can really do it in 24 hours, but you got an overnight no matter what. So what they would typically do is they would stop in uh, Samothrace and hang out their anchor ship so that they're not out in the middle of the Aegean Sea at night because if a storm comes, you want to be on the land. So all they're really saying here in Scripture is on their way across the Aegean Sea, they stopped at this little island on their way to Neapolis because when they get to Neapolis, that's where we pick up the story next. So setting sail from Troyes, we made our way, uh, voyage over to Samothrace and then followed um, the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of, Mas- uh, of uh, Macedonia and a Roman colony. Now, whew, we got some clues here, okay? So Philippi is one of these Roman colonies we talked about. And a Roman colony is a big deal because in a Roman colony, the Roman citizens lived. That means that they get some uh, housing advantages. They get tax breaks, massive tax breaks if you're a Roman citizen. If someone accuses you of something, you have the right to go to court. And if you don't like what the court says, you get to go to Rome and get to the Supreme Court there, just like in our nation. Holding that passport that says Roman was a giant deal. And you fought for Rome like we would fight for the United States of America. You understand? The way of life that Rome created, that's what you loved. And anything that wasn't Roman was suspect. Now in this particular city of Philippi, it was worse. Here's why. Because Philippi was a city that was very wealthy because they had great minerals coming out of the ground. So it was a wealthy city, but it was also a city that had, had a settlement there of veterans. A lot of the veterans from the Great War in BC 42, or 42 BC, however you want to say that, uh, they had settled in Philippi. So now you're a generation later some of them probably very aged. Uh, Their children are there. Their grandchildren are there. And this entire city is made up of veterans from the Great War of uh, 42 BC. Now, the Great War of 42 BC was the war that united Rome. It is one of the most famous wars. And so it would be like saying we have a city with a bunch of veterans from one of our great wars and their children live there and their grandchildren live there. What do you not do in a city like that? You do not speak against Rome, right? You do not live against Rome. These are the people that would die at 93 fighting for Rome. You understand? Like, I might be old, but bring them. I took them in 42. I'll take them again. You know? That's where you're at. So Philippi is a wealthy city. If you live there, either you live there because you're a veteran and you have great advantage and you've been given a home, or you live there because you're wealthy. And so this is a wealthy city. In this city, uh, this city's not gonna enjoy cults that have nothing to do with Rome. If you serve the Roman gods, awesome. If you don't and you're one of the uh, established religions like Judaism, we'll tolerate that, but we don't love it. It's not great to be Jewish in Philippi because yeah, it's okay, we get it, but you serve that weird God of the Jews and we don't even understand why. And why do you even live in a Roman city when you're doing that? You know what I'm saying? Like, you can do it, we're a free place, but it's weird. And so that's how they would deal with that. Any other cults were not tolerated in Philippi. Philippi was not the place you come do anything other than something Roman. And so this is what happens in Philippi. Take a look. 
And it says here in the district of Macedonia, in a, uh, in a Roman, it was a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. So they're hanging out in the city talking, and what are they doing? They are probably finding out where's the Jewish synagogue, because that's what Paul did, right? On the Sabbath um, day, we went outside the gates uh, to a riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. So this gives us a clue about Philippi, now exactly what we thought would happen. See, Paul and, and Silas and Timothy and Luke, they're walking around the city. It was not inappropriate in a city that's hustling, bustling like this one to be walking around saying, hey guys, is there a Jewish synagogue around town? Because we've just come into town. It would be typical of a Jewish businessman with his entourage, entourage coming into town and just asking, you know, the Sabbath is coming. I, I want to worship. Is there a synagogue? No one would have looked at them and gone, how dare you come in here? But they kind of would have gone, look, man, you're in Philippi. Ain't no synagogue here. You know, if, you want, if you want to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, there is, we've heard, a prayer meeting that goes on outside the city. I mean, you know, we don't mess with it. They, they go out, it's about a mile and a half outside the city by a little river there. You can go hang out with those people. And so they find out through the grapevine that there's this little prayer meeting. So they go, well, let's go, let's go find out what's going on there. So they head down to the prayer meeting. Guess what they find there? Find a bunch of women sitting around praying. All the women out there, the men are too scared. I, I suspect, I don't know that for sure, but that would be my guess. The men are trying to guard their reputations and their policies and their businesses and the woman out there praying. It's awesome. Um, and so uh, here's, what, here's what they get to. But this is what we find out about the woman down by the river. Take a look at this. One who, it says this, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of uh, Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. So there's a woman among these women and her name is Lydia, okay? And Lydia is an extraordinary woman, we find out here. She's from Thyatira and Thyatira was a very significant city, I'll explain in a second. She is the dealer in purple goods which will make perfect sense in a second and she is a worshiper of God. Now, the fact that they say she's a worshiper of God gives us a clue as to who these women are. These are not Jewish women, they are women that are Gentile but along their journey somewhere they have encountered the God of Israel and they now are worshipers of the one true God but they are not Jewish, otherwise it would have said a bunch of Jewish women, but they say a bunch of worshipers of God. They worship the right God, but they are not Jewish by blood, and so they are Gentile worshipers. This woman also, we find out, is a dealer in purple goods. Now, that's really fascinating because it tells us a lot about her. She is a sharp gal, this guy. I mean, she's awesome, and you're going to love her. She's so cool. Very influential in the city, and here's why. Because the city that she's from, guess what they're famous for? Uh, 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 an emerging city in the Roman Empire during this time, they're famous for the dye that they produce to dye things purple. That's what they're famous for. She is from that city, that's her hometown, that's where her family probably lives, and that's where she has her contacts. She is in Philippi, living in Philippi, selling what? Purple goods, why purple goods? Well, purple goods were very significant this time because the color purple represented the color of royalty. And when you have a prosperous society, things change in that society. We know all too well, right? You move from living uh, at the basic level of just, I, I have what I need, it's simple, I'm eating three meals a day, I've got clothes on, I'm not running around naked, and I've got shoes that are comfortable so that I'm not hurting my feet. And when you become a prosperous nation, you start going like this, my color's better than your color. 
So now you need three colors instead of one, and then five, and then seven. Then you pick the colors that are the best colors and you wear them. And then eventually, you don't even know it, generations later, your entire life revolves around what you're doing to show everybody else how awesome you are. The cars you drive, the houses you live in, the stuff you do, where you shop, and what clothes you wear. And if we all go, that's not us, uh, look around. We're all wearing all sorts of colors. You matched today, didn't you? Because until you're four, it's appropriate not to match, but after that, it reflects on the parents and it's no good, <laughs> right? We know. So we're careful. We're like, oh my gosh, we've got we to gotta be on top of this stuff. And so this is how the Roman Empire was functioning. In a city like uh, the city of Philippi, where wealth was uh, in, 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 uh, just in abundance, uh, you, if you dealt in purple goods, that meant you were very wealthy because you had a very lucrative business because you were bringing the most desired uh, clothing and artwork and stuff in purple for decorating your homes and your bodies uh, to the town. So what Lydia had done apparently is she'd lived in the town where purple dye happened she had a business going there. She came to Philippi, established a business there, and the business grew there. Now she's living in her own home in Philippi. That's huge. Her home is probably a business, so it's a large home with large space. She has a household. We know that. I'll show you in a second why. And so she has employees, and she is a woman of influence, a businesswoman, knocking it out the park in Philippi. But she has discovered the one true God. Now, uh, serving this one true God from where she's at and the city she came from, she was Roman uh, or, or um, uh, she, she was born in a Roman region. So she was probably somebody that had grown up with the Roman gods or the Greek gods. So this was a big change and her reputation was on the line. So what were they currently doing? Were they flaunting this around? I'm Jewish. I serve the Jewish God. No. On the Sabbath, they quietly went outside the city to a little river where nobody was around, and they just had a prayer meeting. There was word in town that there's a prayer meeting, but nobody even knew who went to it. How do we know? Because it says Paul and them went to the river where they supposed that there would be a prayer meeting. They didn't even know because nobody really, it was sort of a hidden deal. Why were they doing that? Because if you were Lydia and you were trying to preserve any kind of real reputation with your business and be lucrative, you don't go flaunting that, you're, that you now serve the Jewish God. That's bad for business. It's bad for lots of things. It's bad for reputation. So she was a smart woman. I want to serve God, but I want to do it quietly. Sound familiar? Sounds familiar to me. I mean, it's, it's kind of how we live a lot, right? I, I want to serve God, but I want to serve him quietly unless he absolutely tells me I must be loud, but then only for one second and only if it's appropriate and only if it doesn't offend right? And so that's kind of Lydia. That's how she lives. And nothing wrong with that. That's what she's doing. Except now something extraordinary happens. Take a look. And it says this, the next, the next part of the verse, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That's my favorite line in this entire story because it ties the entire journey we've been on together, doesn't it? In this moment where you hear, it, wasn't, it didn't say, and Paul uh, articulated beautifully the realities of the gospel and Lydia responded, or Paul was an apologetic master bringing out all the reasons why this was real and so Lydia responded. It wasn't Paul was a master of inspiration, so Lydia responded. It says, and God opened her heart so that she would respond to the gospel as Paul preached it. And you know what this means? This means that when they left Galatia and God went, no, don't go south. I don't want you lingering in Ephesus and hanging out there for a bunch of months. We'll get back to Ephesus later. I don't want you going up into Bithynia and hanging out there with a bunch of cities. We'll get to them later. I have a story waiting for you in Philippi. Her name is Lydia. I've already written it in. And it's almost as though we've been watching God author it as he's gone, right? And then I, I stopped them from going to Bithynia. That was awesome. They complained a bit, but it was fine. And then we, we, we got to Troas and, and they, they weren't getting it. They didn't know to go across the Aegean Sea, so I gave them a vision. That one was super cool, and, and it gets even cooler later. Just wait and see. And so, and then he goes, and then I got him over to Philippi, and I had Lydia ready for them, and they collided, and it was awesome. 
And don't you just go, man, that is just awesome. That's how God authors his stories. And so here they are with Lydia, and her heart is open and receptive because God has already opened it. Paul preaches the gospel, and Lydia comes to know Jesus. And we all sit here and cheer, and we go, there's the miracle. And I go, no, not yet. That's not even the beginning. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it, it's the fact that we just found out we're pregnant with a miracle. It's not even the miracle yet, right? Because the miracle's about to happen. This is where it really gets awesome. This is what begins to challenge us to say, man, this is why you want to live on mission. This is why you want to be receptive to the Spirit. This is why you want to be on the go for the story of God, not your own story, right? So take a look at what happens. Let's see what Lydia does. And it says, after, she, um, after that, um, she was baptized and her household as well, and she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come on to my house and, and, and stay, and she prevailed upon us. I love that, and she prevailed upon us. So here's, here's what's happening right in this little moment. Right after Lydia comes to know Jesus, a brand new Lydia suddenly arrives on the scene. Same personality, you can tell. I mean, she's just a go-girl, right? But suddenly, this reality that she was living in, where she's now worshiping this different God, and she's doing it outside the city by the river to keep but quiet so she doesn't spoil her reputation, her business, and her home, and her way of life. Suddenly, all that changes. The first thing we see her do is she jumps into baptism. What is baptism? It is the public declaration of the faith that you have now come to understand in Christ. It is you saying, I am not afraid that everyone knows. That's why baptism is so beautiful because it's our first step of great faith where we say, I, I'm a little nervous that I now believe this incredible truth that has come to me, but it's a truth that in my society isn't necessarily a, the happiest of truths, but I am unafraid to say I follow Jesus. And so suddenly, immediately she's baptized and goes, yes, I want everyone to know I follow Jesus. She did not want everyone to know she followed God as a God worshiper before. She met outside the city by the river. And then we find out, oh, it gets worse than that. She immediately goes home, and not just her family, her household. The statement of household means anyone residing in her business or home, she shared the gospel with, and it says her whole household came to know Jesus. So guess what Lydia did? She ran straight home, and over the next probably couple of hours, maybe days, she's telling her entire household, you're not gonna believe what I discovered. I, I mean, I knew God, and that was awesome on that last travel I did or when that Jewish businessman came through town, and I was kind of secretive about it, but I don't need to be secretive about it because I just found out that God came for us, and, and can, can you imagine how awesome that was? And I'm not surprised because I'm sure Luke, Luke's a smart guy. I mean, he wrote the book of Acts, for crying out loud, and and, and Luke, I'm sure at some point, or maybe Paul, or maybe Timothy, because he's kind of a disciple or guy, called Lydia aside and said, can I tell you a story? I just want you to know God brought us for you. Because we were actually gonna go down south into Ephesus, or we were gonna go up into Bithynia, and we were bouncing all around, and God just kept stopping us and stopping us, and we had no idea why, and then we got to Troas, and there was this dude in a vision, and he said to come, and we were looking for him, but he wasn't here, so we, then we looked for a prayer meeting, and, and then we came out here, and God had already opened your heart. Do you realize that God has been pursuing you for weeks, if not months, if not years? In fact, God's been pursuing you forever, and he brought us to this very place in this very moment, stopping us from hundreds of incredible opportunities just so we could tell you about Jesus. Can you imagine Lydia? Like for, for me? You just came here for me? So I would know Jesus? See that changes the game, doesn't it? Suddenly everything you have, everything you are, it doesn't matter anymore. Because he came for you. And this is where the response of gratitude is born from Lydia. She goes straight to her household and she goes, I gotta, I gotta tell you some stuff. And then what's even cooler is not only does she go to her household unapologetically and preach the gospel to them, live the gospel out and bring them to know Jesus, but then she goes to Paul and, the, and, and his entourage and says to them, I want you to come stay at my house. 
You see, what that meant was that she knew why they were in town. They weren't in town to come settle in for a couple of days and move on. They were in town to do what? To establish the church of Christ, to, to bring the gospel to bear on a city. And that was not gonna be a pretty place to do it in Philippi because I'll tell you this, Judaism was an official religion. The way, or Christianity as we know it today, was not. As a matter of fact, in the Roman Empire, the way was kind of an irritation, kind of something that they were watching carefully because it was an occult that had come out of Judaism that was no good by some rebel dude that had died on a cross. And they thought they'd gotten rid of him, but it was on the move. And so if you're gonna start becoming Christian in Philippi, that is actually going to be worthy of persecution. And we find out later the church in Philippi was highly persecuted. So Lydia knows what she's asking them to do is come to her house and make her home a base to bring others to Jesus which is going to deeply affect her reputation, deeply affect her business, deeply affect many things for her. It's so much so that I suspect that one of the guys probably said to Lydia, thank you, really appreciate your offer, but you don't understand, we don't want to, we don't want to create waves for you. You seem like you're doing really well, and God has brought you to Jesus now, and, and you can use that platform for the gospel, but if we come stay at your house, you understand that's going to be detrimental. And it says Lydia urged them she urged them, and then I love the way Luke writes that last, you can almost hear Luke sort of giving up, right? She prevailed over us. I mean, we tried everything, but the woman won. So we ended up in her house. And so there we were, and we find out later on that actually the house of Lydia became the central hub of the beginning of the church in Philippi. We are watching the church in Philippi born in the house of Lydia. We know because in verse 40 of this very chapter, after Paul goes through multiple other things which we'll get to in the next few weeks, amazing stories in Philippi, he comes back and he says, before we leave, let's go hang out with the brothers at Lydia's house. And they go to Lydia's house and says they encouraged the brothers before they left, which is the way Paul always said, well Luke in this case always said, we went back to the church, we encouraged them before we left and we said stand strong. You know what else came out of the church in Philippi? Remember how, how uh, God started his letter through Paul to the Galatian church? Oh, you foolish Galatians who have so quickly bewitched you. Remember that? Here's how he starts his letter to the church in Philippi later on. This gives you a glimpse into the kind of church this became. Every time I think of you, every time I pray for you, I pray with joy because of the great partnership in the gospel that you've had with me from the first day until now. And I am convinced of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion before the day of Christ Jesus. That's how he starts in the church of Philippi. Lydia was the start of that. You know what else he writes in that book? To live as Christ and to die as gain. That's in the book of Philippians. He writes about standing strong in persecution because the church in Philippi was persecuted. They were a poor church because they were so persecuted they couldn't do business well, but yet they gave more to Paul's ministry than other churches. And he said, for what you do, it's, it's incredible. That, that is the letter that he wrote these words. Do not be anxious about anything, but in all things by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God that transcends understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You've probably memorized more verses out of Philippians than any other book. And that's all born out of the story of Lydia deciding to say, I want it to be at my house. You know what else happened? You don't know this, but this is true too. Do you know that the gospel moves from Philippi into Macedonia and then through Macedonia into Europe and through Europe, it undermines the entire structure of the Roman Empire. It actually brings them to their knees eventually, changing the entire way that history would have unfolded if the Roman Empire had continued and it shapes the way we live today. The, the church in Philippi was the catalyst, the moment, the beginning point, the birthing point of one of the greatest movements of the gospel that we will ever have seen. And who is at the center of that story? Who sits right in the middle of that miracle? 
Paul and his team and Lydia. Do you know why they sit in the middle of that miracle? I'll tell you exactly why. Because they understood the incredible invitation of God into the life of mission. See, Paul had matured in his journey, so he understood it the way we should understand it as we mature. You get out there on mission and stay on the go. Go in your workplaces, go in your schools, go in your neighborhoods, go into the places you live and live on mission. Live graciously, live the gospel, speak the gospel, declare the gospel, invite people into the gospel. Do that in the ways you can. Take bread to the poor, be on the move. But while you're on the move, be devoted enough and intimate enough with the Holy Spirit that you are listening to what he says because sometimes what seems like just the right move may actually distract from the great miracle he has around the corner. And so our, our story is in our maturity to live a life of deep devotion, a work of intimacy with the Spirit of God, so that while we are on the go doing life, He can direct our path, but we don't sit around and wait because He's already said carry the gospel. So if He's not telling you, just carry it to what's right in front of you. And then if He tells you not to, stop and turn. And that's the mature life we are all moving toward. And some of us are, are, are tasting of, right? But Lydia's life, she hadn't matured. She wasn't like years into the deal. She just came to Jesus and what did she do? She gives us the clue into where our life begins as a Christ follower and where it needs to stay as a Christ follower, the life we have often long forgotten. When you come to Jesus and you realize what he has done for you, that incredible act of gratitude as you dig into the gospel, which we say here all the time, right? Dig into the gospel daily. Let the gospel inform you daily. It's not something you encountered years ago that you should have forgotten now. It is your daily salvation, right? I mean, it has saved you forever and it has held you forever, but yet simultaneously today, it is saving you, right? It's, it's there to inform you. Stay in it, why? Because when we are in the gospel, gratitude is born out of us and we realize what our life really is. God has given us all these incredible resources, relationships, circumstances, resources, talents, time, all the things we have, and he's given it to us for what? So that we can abound? No. In fact, in, in the book of Corinthians, he says it absolutely clearly. I have provided for you all these things so that you might abound in good works. <gasps> We've been given all this stuff so we can abound in good works, so we can abound in mission. And so, like Lydia, here's what she got. Once you come to know Jesus, whatever was yours is no longer yours, but that's not a bad thing, that's a joy, because you were spending it on your story, and your story goes nowhere, you understand? Your story dies with you. If you're, if you're one of the few crazies on planet Earth, it, it lasts a generation or two and then dies after that. But when you spend all you've been given for God's story, you find yourself in the middle of miracles, in the middle of wonder and we can become a force for redemption, changing the world. This is the invitation. Respond like Lydia. Take what you have and go, if I have anything, I have something to give. What happens when we live like that on our planet, in our time, in our context? What happens when we do that? How does that play out? Well, there's a story that actually beautifully describes this. Today, right now, as we sit here, there is a church like ours, except it's in a different place. It's in the country of India, in the poorest region of one of the poorest countries in the world. And it is a church that has become a missions movement bar none on planet Earth. It is an extraordinary church changing the world while we are trying to figure out how they are just going and doing it. But do you know why they're doing it? Do you know how they're doing it? Well, allow me to show you. Take a look at this quick video. लाल रुआ 
lives in a tiny remote village in Mizoram. Her family sustains on a meager income of less than $1 a day. Despite abject poverty, simple women like Lalwa are spearheading a revolution that is sweeping the world of missions. Their movement, Bufai Tham, or a handful of rice. Bufai Tham is a practice where each Mizo family puts aside a handful of rice every time they cook a meal and later gather it and offer to the church. The church in turn sells the rice and generates income to support its work. Rice has been the staple food of the people of Mizoram. You are giving what is basic, essential, fundamental to your life. You are sharing that with God. With the passage of time, people have given more than rice, vegetables, firewood, cereals, and their regular tithes empowering the church to be self-sufficient. Mizoram state is the most backward state in India and we are the poorest of the, of the poor but still we can raise funds for the ministry of the Lord. At the close of this last physical year we received altogether around 13 million US dollars. Out of that 12% of our total income is from the handful of rice collection. With 1,800 missionaries in India and many overseas, the Mizoram Church is known as a missionary church world over. This success is attributed to their selfless and creative giving. It is not our richness or our poverty that make us serve the Lord but our willingness. So we Mizo people said, as long as we have something to eat every day, we have something to give to God every day. Let me just put this into perspective for you. That church has sent out, did you hear that? 1,900 missionaries all over India and many around the world. That church has sent them out. That church, this last fiscal year, raised 13 million US dollars. 12% of that was from handfuls of rice, and that equates to almost $2 million this last year that they raised from women that put a handful of rice aside every time they cook a meal. And do you know why that's happening? Do you know why that church is changing the world? Do you know why that church is just moving forward? Because the people of God know what Lydia knew. They've been invited into a miraculous story and they are living a miraculous story because they are taking what was theirs and should be theirs. They make $365 a year, a year, and yet they give what they have. And the line in that that was so beautiful to me is it is not our riches or our poverty that allows us to serve the Lord. It is our willingness. 
We have all been given more than we can imagine and we are spending so much time of our lives trying to manage it in such a way that there's enough for us and then if there's more than we need, then we will consider what we could do with that for the sake of God. We are asking the question so often, how much should I give to fulfill my obligation to God since he rescued me? When what we ought to be asking is, how much do I get to give since he has come and invited me into the story of this world and bringing the kingdom of God to it. When we begin to ask a different question, it changes the way we live. And when we begin to live differently like Lydia did, we will find ourselves as a church and as individuals standing in the middle of stories like Lydia found herself standing in the middle of. Risking our well-being for the gospel and discovering the life that we gain in return is a life of the miraculous movement of the gospel. And we will not look at stories like this and wonder what it must be like now to be Lydia. But instead we will stand in the middle of them saying, I know what it's like. It's hard, it's sacrificial, it's tedious, it's full of persecution, and it robs me of all that I thought I needed. And yet I stand full beyond the measure of fullness that I could ever have experienced. May we become a people that like Paul, stays on the go, receptive to the Spirit, and like Lydia, lays bare our time, lays bare our resources, lays bare our stuff, and we work strategically at them to be good managers of them, but say to God always, while I work at it to build that, if you want it, just say the word, and I will give it, because I would rather be part of your story than build mine. May we urge the Lord to use our house right? May we urge the Lord, please, my money, my stuff, my deal. Don't just let me keep managing it for my life. And then when he doesn't, then let us prevail over him. Well, we can't really do that with God, but let's at least pretend, right? May we come and seek the opportunities that we get to be part of instead of wondering what needs we must be part of to fulfill the obligations to which we're called. And then we will change the world as ambassadors of Christ for his glory and the expansion of his kingdom. Let's pray. God, thank you for the incredible opportunity we have, not only to have our souls rescued by your great work uh, of death and resurrection, but also to have our purposes restored to live our lives on mission for you, recognizing that all that you have given us, every relationship, every resource, every bit of time we have, every circumstance has been given to us as an incredible privilege by which we can abound in good works. And when we get captivated by that deep need for security where we are building the kingdom so that we will be secure before we step into the works that you're inviting us into, may we reverse that coin and trust that you have plans and stories for us to be part of, to abound in good works, that we can trust you with our future. May we manage well the resources you've given us and may we move forward in putting them into places where they will be used well, both for our families and those beyond. But may we never hold on to them in such a way that they are no longer available to you to be used as you see fit. May we, like Lydia, urge you to use our stuff, our time, our talents, our circumstances, our relationships for the expansion of your great story so that we might stand in the middle of your great miracles. Help us to be receptive to that 
and help us to be on the move every day in our workplaces, our social networks, our schools, the places you've placed us to be influential so that we might be world changers on your behalf and live your story instead of ours. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.